I'm really excited that we are in the book of Mark, and uh, I love that we get to spend the next 10 weeks uh, finishing up talking about the life of Jesus. And uh, that's an amazing, amazing privilege that we get to do. Um, Jesus is one of the most uh, controversial and dividing people and figures in the world today in a lot of ways. A lot of people look at this man named Jesus, and they ask a lot of questions, and there's a lot of confusion around it. And even in Christianity, there's a lot of confusion around it. And so what Mark does in the book of Mark is the very beginning, the first eight chapters of this book begin to unfold for us uh, this question, who is Jesus? And Mark starts it off in the whole book, and he says uh, in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark says from the very beginning, this is my thought, this is who I think Jesus is, this is what I want you to see. And then from there on out, Mark doesn't really give his conjecture on things, he doesn't give his opinion, he just puts the, uh, the scenarios and the stories in front of you about the life of Jesus and how people react to them, and that begins to unfold. And so you get to be able to make decisions about that. Now, I love this. Mark is John Mark. So if you ever read the New Testament and you hear about John Mark, you get to hear about this man who traveled with Paul and heard the stories from Peter about the life of Jesus Christ and compiled these together. In fact, we actually have outside sources, uh, ancient, um, ancient early church historians who wrote about how this book was compiled. A guy named uh, Papias, uh, not papaya, which is delicious, but uh, Papias, uh, he was actually part of a church where uh, John, the, the apostle... Uh, I'm sorry, the, the disciple John was part of the church. And, and he said that John explained to me, and he writes this, that Mark got all of his stories of Jesus from the life of Peter, hearing from Peter, taking account from Peter, and compiling all of this together. So that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at a compilation of stories, a lot of them that came from uh, Peter, who told John Mark, who compiles it all together, and there are more miracles in the book of Mark than there are in any other gospel, and yet it's the shortest gospel. And so Mark is just trying to go, this is who Jesus is. I want you to see it. And he puts all of them in front of us, right in front of us. It's a power-packed book. It goes very fast. A lot happens very quickly. And if you were here last week, Tori did a great job of explaining to us the very beginning of the book. Now, I don't know if you're like me, uh, but I do this. I, I like to know a little bit about, like, when I read this again, I want to know what, what is this, what was that whole first chapter about? And so oftentimes when I, when, I, when I read, I will put words at the very top of the chapters that I'm reading so that I can kind of understand, like, what was the theme here? What is it that God wanted me to see here? And, and, and for chapter one, the, the words that I use, and I mean, I invite you to do this if it's going to help you, but the words that I use was rising notoriety and supreme authority. It's what Mark wanted us to see because the author is doing something with the words. He's doing something with the text. He wants you to see that Jesus was rising in notoriety, that people were hearing about him very quickly. People were learning all about his life really quickly, so much so that at the end of the first chapter, it says that he couldn't even enter into the synagogues. He couldn't enter into the towns because there were so many people. So Jesus came along. He said, my mission here was to go from town to town to preach the good news, the kingdom of God that is coming. He couldn't even do that by the end of the first chapter. It said he had to enter into desolate places. He had to hide from people. He was pulling away because all of this commotion and his rising notoriety. But we also see the supreme authority that he had over demons, over sickness, over even the weather. You see the way that he was man, but he was God in the flesh with the ability and the power. He brings upon the dunamis the power that is within him to the people. And you see the authority of God in the flesh. 
And Jesus is making clear this who I am. And now we're going to get into chapter 2 today. And as we enter into chapter 2 today, the word that I put at the top of my heading was opposition. Because when this comes along and someone rises in notoriety and someone begins to have a little bit of power, of course, there's going to be a little bit of opposition. And Mark wants us to see there are actually five moments of challenge and opposition within the second chapter of Mark. And this is, and Jesus is going to respond to that challenge, those challenges, those five challenges, about the people who challenged him. He's going to respond to them about their religiosity. And that's what you're going to see today's, in the, in the second chapter, Jesus begins to dismantle religion. He begins to dismantle burden and weight. He begins to dismantle people who hold burdens over people. And it's an amazing, beautiful, freeing chapter. Now, you got to see something, though, is that I I need you to hear this today. That Jesus uh, causes some controversy. Are you with me on that? Like, Jesus causes some controversy. He stirs a little controversy. and, And for some of us, we're like, yeah, that's Jesus, but not me. You know, and this is the thing is that I want you to know today that you need to know that if you're doing what you're called to do by God, you're most likely going to cause some controversy somewhere. You're most likely going to stir the pot somewhere. You're most likely going to have to shake some feathers somewhere. Is that right? Shake, shake, no, ruffle some feathers. (laughs) Shake the, what am I? Shake your tail feather. That's not what, maybe if you follow Jesus, no. Someone said shake your money maker. Come on now. You're going to have to ruffle some feathers. Because Jesus is going to go up against the paradigm of the day. And things that he says all the time are not going to make everybody happy. And here, he's going to really frustrate some people, specifically the religious leaders of the day. Now, look, I, 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 uh, I just want to point this out today. I'm going to leave this here for you to figure out what you want to do with it. But when you look at the Gospels, Jesus never has an argument or a hostile encounter with a pagan. He always has hostile encounters with the religious elite. Look, if you can find one, let me see, until he gets to his crucifixion by Romans, he never absolutely has any encounter, hostile encounter with a pagan. The greatest opponents of Jesus would be considered the people who thought that they were the most highly invested in the religious right. So what does that tell us today? Where our battles should be considered. I'm not encouraging battling in the church by any means. I don't think that's the Lord's heart. But I am encouraging us to look at who Jesus is, who he says he is, and what he stands for, and to not be fearful to stand up in righteous confrontation as God, as God begins to bring by the Holy Spirit's power where you need to stand in love and kindness and in a little bit maybe sometimes some controversy. This is what Jesus, this is what he calls us into and what we actually even see here. You see, John Eldridge says it this way. He says that the enemy of the church today is not paganism. It's empty, cold religion that leads one to believe that they know Christ when all they know are facts about him, but they never actually really knew him. They know the letter of the law, but they don't know the spirit of the law. You see, we understand Jesus and what he calls us to do, y'all. It's easy to sit here today to go through the book of Mark and go, okay, Jesus says to do this. We can understand that. But until you understand the spirit behind what he's calling you into, you can't understand the heart of God. There is a spirit behind it, the heart of the Lord behind it, and he wants us to look at this. We're going to start in verse 13 today of chapter 2. We're not going to start at the beginning of chapter 2 because uh, there is, by the way, the first opposition in this chapter in the first 12 verses there. But we're, we've already actually gone over that here at the well before, so we're not going to go into that today. But that story, in short, 
is a story that Jesus had a lot of notoriety, right? He was rising in all the, uh, he was rising in notoriety and all these people were showing up to hear him preach and he's standing in the middle of a synagogue. He's standing at a place and all of a sudden the roof parts open and mud's being pulled back and tiles being pulled back and there's some men who lower a man on a mat in the middle of the people there because they wanted their friend to get healed. And Jesus is amazed by this. He's blown away that these people would go to this length. I mean, can you imagine today that this right here, that these tiles right here just came undone and all that stuff starts falling all on y'all right there. All that mud, all of that asbestos, whatever that stuff is in there. I don't know what it is. I hope it's not asbestos anymore. But if it just came down right on top of you and Jesus was amazed and he said, man, he said, I'm amazed at their faith. Your sins, he doesn't even heal them first. He says, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders are watching him, and they get a little frustrated. They get their feathers ruffled, right, <laughs> a little bit. And they say, uh, who are you? They, they actually ask this question, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is like, well, I'm glad you asked. And just to show you that I can do that, that I have the authority to do that, he tells the man, now I'll heal you. Get up and walk. And the people were amazed at what he did. And we'll pick up here. Chapter 2, verse 13, right after this. It says, he went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them, and he passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed. And as he reclined at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And there were scribes of the Pharisees. And when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, challenge number two, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinners. Jesus comes right in the middle of this. And he shakes up these guys' religious paradigm from the very beginning. Now, here's the thing. You've got to understand a little bit of the context here to know where we're going today. So I've got to give you a little bit of historical background here for you to hear about where we're headed, and it's going to set us up for where we're going. In this day and in this time, if you've been to church ever, you have heard tax collectors did not get along with the Jewish people of the time. In this time, at this, at this moment, there were, um, if you've ever been to Capernaum, anybody ever been to Israel before, by the way? Anybody in here ever been? We've got a couple people. If you go to Israel and you go to Capernaum, I'm telling you, it's worth every dime you have to go and see this. This stuff comes alive. But when you're standing in Capernaum, it is a city right on the edge of the sea. And this sea is really looks more like a lake probably to us in the States. But you can see across from it. You can see the mountains in the distance. You can see all of these towns, town, 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 all the way. It comes all the way down right here until you get to Capernaum. And in the middle of Capernaum, it says Jesus was walking again beside the sea. I love that, by the way. Notice the little word again. Jesus must have liked long walks on the beach because he was doing it again. I loved it. You, you see, by the way, look, I'm sorry, this is not in my notes. Do you see that the text is not a newspaper? You see that the writer wants you to see a little bit about this personality of who Jesus is? It says, again, he was by the sea. Again, Jesus made it back, and he was walking, and he saw the crowds coming at him, and so he sees the people coming towards him. And you literally, if you stand in Capernaum, you can see the drove, you would be able to see the drove of people walking your way. And Jesus sees this, and he walks by this man named Levi. Now, the tax booth in Capernaum was more probably like a customs office here. 
So all the ships would come in, to set, they would set sail from town to town and across the way, and all these ships would come in, they would carry their goods and their things. And when people crossed borders, they had to pay a custom. And, and so they would get off the ship, they would go, and there was a booth, kind of like a toll road right here on this road, the great road from Damascus, all the way from Damascus down to the Mediterranean. And right there, there would have been a tax booth, and Jesus walks right past it, and there is this man named Levi. He is a customs officer. He's able to charge these people up to 3%, sometimes more, for whatever goods that they have. The only regulation these tax collectors didn't have was they were not allowed to search and seize anything from a Roman woman, but they could do it to anybody else. And many of them were crooked, many of them were wrong, many of them would take what they could, gouge more, pocket a little extra, but the worst part about it is they would take this money and they would give it back to the ruling authorities over them, which they were required to. Now the ruling authority in Galilee right here in Capernaum was a man named Herod, okay? And Herod Antipas that was, was, a, was a placed in position and power by the Romans over the Jews. So when Rome begins to move their empire into the Israeli territory, into Judea, they begin to not only bring their governance and authority, but they also begin to bring their culture with them. So can you imagine, Austinites, I know how you feel about your culture here. We love our culture right here in Austin, Texas. Amen? Y'all don't like it. I love it, okay? I like our culture. Imagine people from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota decide they want to bring in their culture to Austin and they want to change the way that we do things here. How would you feel about that? You probably wouldn't be too happy. I know y'all wouldn't be because y'all don't like, I hear it all the time about the Californians all the time. Everyone complains. Look, I love Californians. It ain't me that's saying it. But look, I get it. What happens here is you have Roman culture, Hellenization coming in and pushing into the people, the Jewish people who are very distinct about their culture. Now, one more thing before we move on. The Jews had the law given to them by God. And God, one of the reasons God gave the law was to set the Jews apart. He wanted them to be distinct and look very distinct from everybody else. So when the Romans start coming in and oppressing this identity of the Jewish people and, and bringing in their sexual immorality and their sexual practices and their licentiousness and their debauchery, and they start bringing this in culturally and pushing this on the Jewish people, what the Jews did in response was the Pharisees began to add even more stipulations on top of the law that was already there. And they said, we want to look even more distinct. We want to look even more separated. We want to make sure that on the Sabbath, if we have the Sabbath, that it's not just that we honor the Sabbath, but we do all of these things to make sure that we're really showing everybody this is who we are. We are the Jews. We are God's people. Are you tracking with me in this? This is what is occurring. So when Jesus walks by a tax collector, you have a tax collector taking money from the Jewish people, giving it back to the Romans who are oppressing the Jews, who would then come back and then oppress the Jews some more. How do you think they felt about that person? terrible. Did not like them one bit whatsoever. And Jesus walks past this man named Levi. And Mark wants us to know his name is Levi. It's a very Jewish name. He wants us to know that, which by the way, later on we call him Matthew. That's who wrote the gospel of Matthew, this man right here. And he walks past him and he says to him, follow me. Now, I don't know if you're like me. I have always been so perplexed <laughs> It, why did these men just drop everything and just get up and go? Like if I, I mean, I can't even get out of bed some days, much less this guy, Jesus looks him in the eye and tells him, follow me. And this man gets right up and leaves and follows him. He just dropped it all. Notice it doesn't say follow me, question mark. Like, would you come with me, question mark? It's actually a command. Jesus commands this guy to follow me, to come after me. 
And I'm not a guy who likes to like sit deeply on the Greek language because I want us to feel like as a church family that you can access the word of God and you can and the spirit of God works through it and there are many tools to help you. But when you dive into this language right here, it is astounding to me because this word follow me is way more than just a command. It's actually an invitation. He's saying, it translates better said, come and walk the same road that I do. Come walk the same road. Beyond that, it's in the present tense, meaning he's saying, don't just come and walk the same road one time, but continually make a habit of walking the same road with me. And so he says, would you come walk the same road with me? Come walk continually alongside. Even more so, the pronoun here, which you probably don't care about this, but I'm gonna tell you, it's in the associative instrumental case for all of us nerds in here. And this is why it's important. He's not just saying, follow me. That way that it's written, he's saying, follow along with me. So he's not saying get behind me and like we would think, follow me, right? He's saying come stand side by side, follow along with me down this road together and keep making that your habit to come alongside. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's not just saying come, follow me, come after me, let it be a burden for you to get behind me and follow me. He's saying I'm inviting you into a relationship, a companionship, come alongside me be my companion, be in a relationship with me. So I literally wrote in my Bible here, follow alongside me down the same road and keep following me. And that's what he says. So maybe it was easy for Levi to follow in some sense. Because when you don't have a lot of companions and someone says, come be my companion and follow alongside me, maybe those are the people that need the companions, right? And Jesus saw it and pulls it out. The other part of this how many times, do, how, how do you think everybody looked at this man, Levi? You know, intense, staunch, taking money, all of these things, these negative things maybe about him. Can you imagine that Jesus maybe actually saw the best in him? Or maybe actually saw in him the things that everybody else hated and thought to himself, I can actually use this for my good and our purposes of the kingdom. You know what I'm saying by that? You know what I mean by that? What I mean by that is in your life, the people that bother you the most, the people you're most frustrated with, have you ever looked at them with kingdom eyes and thought to yourself, I wonder what, if they just use those things for God's sins, what that could do for the kingdom. This is Jesus. This is who he is. He looks at these people who maybe, who are this man who was tenacious, had a drive, was intense, wouldn't, would stick by his guns, and maybe, just maybe, he saw what he was becoming and who he could become. And he would begin to speak that over people. Y'all, we spend so much time telling people what they're not. We spend so much time telling people and relegating them to, they're just that way. They just got to stay that way forever. That's who they are. That's where they're going to be. And I'm telling you, that's not the eyes of the Lord. Maybe you feel that way with yourself. I want you to know that God sees and speaks over you who you're becoming. And then whatever voice you hear in your life that is telling you of what you have been in the past or what you're not, that is not the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord sees who you can become. And those things that maybe other people have told you to stifle and to push down and are not great, the Lord sees how he can take that, use that for his kingdom, for his good, for his glory, and for you to come alive in his name and to be part of his story. This is what God is, does. This is the miraculous hope maker of who he is, y'all. I don't think people think like that. Who's that coworker of yours right now that gets on your last nerve? I want you to think of it. Do you see them and what God sees when they see them? Do you see what they could become? Who's the person that drives you batty? Think of them right now. 
Write their name down in the corner. Don't show anybody because you don't want them to know, right? And if they're sitting next to you, really don't write it down. But write their name down. What if you prayed for them for God to give you the eyes for them that he has for them? What if you saw them that way? What if you began to speak what they're becoming? When I was growing up, um, y'all have heard this before, but my dad, uh, he wasn't around a lot. And uh, it really caused something in me that I didn't realize until a lot later years. Um, I would, um, I'm an Enneagram 3, by the way. We have any Enneagram people in here, so shout out. Enneagram 3, I saw the hands go right up. They're like, me, that's an Enneagram 3, it's me. Uh, I love it. Uh, we like, um, we like uh, applause. We like people who clap. We like to be told that what we do, we like to produce and create and keep producing, and we have a really hard time slowing down. And in that, uh, when I was growing up, I always often thought uh, that, man, if I just worked hard, performed more, people would like me more. And uh, I remember that it got to this point where there were some people, and I remember hearing this over the course of time as I was growing up. I'm like, man, if I could just get people to clap for me, they'll love me. But eventually people started telling me, man, you're too much. You are way too much. And I remember one time someone said to me, uh, your, your personality is just too much to handle. And it stuck with me. <laughs> it stuck. And I made an agreement that day with the enemy that that was truth. And it wasn't. And the reality is, is uh, it, it took a while until someone grabbed me uh, by the shoulders, looked me in the eye and said to me, hey, Nick, uh, no, I began to like kind of stifle that stuff. And it wasn't until someone grabbed me and said, hey, Nick, uh, nobody ever became more by becoming less. And maybe there are these things inside of you that are just not used in the right way. But God made you this way. And it took someone drawing and calling that out in me to begin to see how I could use that. Do you know today, maybe you feel like your personality, you feel like people oppress or push against it. Do you know today that God longs to use those pieces of you, even the pieces that you, even the pieces that you're not using for his good, Maybe things you're doing not great things with. Maybe you've got a charisma and you use it inappropriately. You're a guy in here and you use it in a way that maybe you take advantage of girls. Or maybe you're someone in here who's really good at convincing and negotiating and maybe you use that for not to the advantage in, in, a, in a good moral sense, but instead uh, you use it for other reasons. Do you see that God can use the worst things in you for his good and his glory, for your good and his glory? So right now, I need you to hear that the Lord sees you. And he calls this man. He sees him, who he's becoming. He calls him to follow him. And Levi would have to leave position, luxury, status. He'd have to leave a lot. And he'd have to walk down the road, right? Come with me, alongside me. Walk down this road with me. And you know where that road would go to. It'd be a road at times of loneliness. It'd be a road to holiness, sometimes means loneliness, amen? He would be a road of self-sacrifice. It'd be a road sometimes of altruism, a road of suffering. But Levi would follow, and the main thing he'd leave behind is probably himself. This is what Jesus calls us to, is to leave ourself behind, to leave all of this, that we put us before anything else and put Jesus and God above everything else. Do you see today, is there things that Jesus needs you to leave behind right now? That's a question for you maybe to walk with. But it goes on, and this is what happens. They get to the house of these tax, uh, of, of Levi. I love, by the way, that a man not welcomed into the synagogue takes another man who was probably what the synagogue is supposed to be about, Jesus, and takes him to a table into a house with other men who weren't welcomed into the synagogue, and they're all sitting together. Who are the people in your life that aren't in this church that we need to be around? 
Who are those people today in your life right now that are those people? Who are you hanging with that wouldn't be here at church? That's what I want to know. Because I want to know today who are the people what, that you are around that maybe wouldn't sit in the middle of this place today. Because that's where Jesus was. He found himself at a table with people who were pushed away by the religious. The people who were thinking they were following the religious way. I'm just curious. I'm just wondering, like, what do y'all think happened at that table? <laughs> what do y'all think was going on at that table? You think there was alcohol at that table? Ooh, that was weird. Uh, do you think there was uh, coarse language at that table with a bunch of men who snubbed their nose at the religious? Do you think that the conversation was all glorifying to God and it was perfect? No, probably not. It pro- you think Jesus was ever uncomfortable at that table? I think he probably was. But I know this, Jesus sat with them. He positioned himself there. And by the way, side note, do you know that a disciple does not have anything to do with salvation? That might break someone's religious paradigm today. A disciple means someone who just learns, who's willing to learn from somebody else. And you don't believe me, Judas was a disciple and he betrayed Jesus and walked away. You still don't believe me? Go read John 6, 60 through 66. Jesus starts teaching about salvation to his disciples, his many disciples, it says, and many of them left him. So what if maybe, church, our discipleship of people in the city looked a lot more like, a lot less like a formula and a more, more like companionship, opening some doors, inviting some people to walk down the same road as us. What would that do in this city if all of us just found one person who's not in this place and walked down the road with them? What could it do? It could start a revolution. This is the life of Jesus. This is what he calls us into. And it says, he says to them, as the second opposition comes, why does he eat with those sinners and those tax collectors? You could just hear their voice in it, right? Why is he eating with them? Why is he with them? Pastor, Pastor Tori, why are you with those people? He's making me ask all these questions. Your Instagram feed, making me ask some questions. Why are you with those people? You know, I don't know. Do you curate your feet a little bit because you're scared sometimes maybe of what people are going to think or see because you're scared and worried about what the religious types are going to tell you? Or are you, not, are you unashamed and unafraid to enter into the world of people who maybe don't believe what you believe yet? Because that's what this city needs right now. Are y'all with me on this? The city needs us, the church, to walk alongside them, to open the home to them. And yes, to open our mouth when we need to. Yes, the Lord said, make disciples, baptize them, teach them all that I've commanded you. That's what his call was. But you do that by way of relationship. And this is what Jesus did. He's building this relationship with these men. And these Pharisees are looking, and he says to them, those that are well don't need a physician. If you think you don't have a need today, you don't need a physician. If you think you have no needs of God today, you're good how you are right now. You don't need Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to show up to places where people need me and people want me. That's where I'm going to show up today. And maybe you think your religious activities have got you to a place where you're like, I don't need the Lord anymore. And the Lord's saying, no, that's not it. Everybody needs me. Because the only one, there's people at the table there, and there were fingers pointing at the table And the commonality between the both of them was this. They were both sinners. They were both sinners. Amen? They both were in this place. He came for sinners, he says. He came for you and me. He came for your pastor today who is a sinner, redeemed as a saint. Amen? 
We are redeemed as saints, but this is where we come from, is a broken place of need, and we are still in need until the day we see Jesus face to face, and he makes us whole, and he gives us full, complete shalom, and he brings us all together in the, in the eternal Sabbath when we are with him, and he makes us complete in his sight. This is the Lord. And so until that day, Jesus did not come for perfect people, because if he came for perfect people, he'd come for himself. But he came for you and I, and we are not perfect. And of all the things in the world that separate us, there's one thing that keeps us the same, and it's this. You and me and you and me and all of us and them out there, them, they, you know, the world, they need the Lord. They need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need him in our life. We need him. So which one are you? Are you the Levi? Are you Levi? Or are you the Pharisee? In your heart of hearts, which one? You're one of those. Who are you? And which one are you? And the Lord says, I've come for both of you. We're going to skip ahead. Actually, there's another um, challenge here in the next section here. And after uh, chapter, I'm sorry, after verse 18. But we're going to skip to verse 23. And in verse 23, he says this. It says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and they were making their way his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Another why question, the fourth why question and the fourth opposition. Why are they doing what's not lawful? And he said, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and he was hungry, he and those who were with him, they entered the house of God in the time of Abathah. And the high priest, and they ate the bread, which is not lawful for anyone, but priests to eat. And also they gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, and this is the key of this whole day, y'all. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And again, he entered into the synagogue, and the man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus. They watched him to see whether he was going to heal this man or whether, uh, whether he was going to heal this man so that, it says, the text says, so that they might accuse him. And he came to this man with a withered hand, and he said, come here. And he looked to the Pharisees, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath for me to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill a life? I've always wondered when I read that, was maybe he, was he saying that to them because these would be the men that would kill him and take his life? But he looks at them and says, is it lawful for me to do good on the Sabbath? That's your rule. That's your, the regulation, right? And he responds to them, and he says that. And they, it's, the text says in verse 4, they were silent. And he looked around, and y'all need to see this today. He was, looked at them with anger. He grieved at the hardness of their heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out in faith, hello, and his hand was restored. His hand had restoration, and the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him. All right, as we close this thing up, I want you to see three things here. I want you to, one, see Jesus' anger. I want you to see his anger. I want you to also see the enemies in this text against Jesus. And the last thing I want you to see is the claim that Jesus made. 
all right? So in the first story, in the first opposition story, it's the Sabbath, right? So God, he creates the Sabbath, right? He says one out of seven days, we have to rest. We need to rest, okay? He makes this. But what happened when the Romans came in? They began impressing their ways over, uh, over the Jews, and the Jews began to put more distinctions around their laws. In fact, the Pharisees for the Sabbath made 39 distinctions of what the Sabbath should be that they added on top of the law as it was. 39 39. One of them was what the accusation was here, which was they weren't allowed to reap grain on the Sabbath. So that's the first opposition story. The second one is Jesus enters in the synagogue and there's a man with a hand that's withered. This man would have been considered unclean. He would have been considered unable uh, to, to worship even with these people. And he would have been begging possibly for money because nobody wants to touch him. No one wants to go near him. They would have thought that his withered hand was probably due to the sin of his family, a superstitious belief of this day. And Jesus goes to him, and instead of these religious leaders having any sense of compassion or any sense of mercy, they look at this man and they go, I'm not helping him. I'm going to watch that man and see if he's going to heal him, because if he does, he worked on the Sabbath. Do you see how wicked this heart is? The wickedness of if somebody was in here right now with, with hurting and in pain, and we're just like, I'm going to see how the pastor's going to respond to him. You know, because if he does and he doesn't really care about us, he's going to come up here and preach instead or, you know, something that, that, that we just, they created in their mind this mentality of, the, of, the, of this, of the, I've got to go after this man. They did not like him. And Jesus gets angry. I love this because one of my favorite things to preach on is how Jesus is so different than oftentimes our paradigm of what we think he is. This word anger literally means it means an epic anger. He was angry. If you look in the Greek lexicon, he was angry to an epic level. Okay, y'all, can you imagine your pastor getting angry to an epic level? Would that be okay to you if you saw that in public? He was angry to an epic level. He was grieved. The word grieved there is the same word they would use if they went to a funeral for someone, a loved one who died. That's the feelings that our Savior felt when he saw these men's hardened hearts. They're, that word hardened, their thickening callousness. It's like a, if you work out and you build callus on your hands, or maybe women, you wear high heels, you know, you get them calluses on your feet, right? Okay, it's that over their hearts. And Jesus was angry. He was angry at this. It hurt him, and it made him upset. And you know, you're like, why? Why was he so upset? Is it, was he so upset just because of that? I believe part of the reason he was upset was just this right here. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Translation, what was the Sabbath? The law. The law. I am the Lord of the law. The law, don't miss this, was made for man, not man for the law. Today, the laws that God has given us have been given to us as a gift. And he is angry because these men don't look at it as a gift. They see it as a burden to chain up other people. They see it as a burden that, these, that you have to follow this law to the letter of the law, to the T of the law. You have to follow it. They do not see it as a gift as God intended. That God said to himself, to these people right here, I made the law for man and the man not for the law. I am the son of man and the Lord is even Lord over the Sabbath, the law. This is what he tells them there. They don't see it this way. 
They see the law as a way to measure up their moral code. They see the law as a way to see how well they're doing, right? Do we do that at all? Like, do we look at the law and go, how well am I doing? And we just see, well, I did this well this week. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And so what do we do? We break the law. We fail, right? We move on. And what do we do? We take days sometimes to come back to the Lord. Why? Because we feel dirty. We feel sick. And some of us have these habitual sins that over and over we still deal with. And it's like this scab and we keep picking at it and causes this wound. And we keep coming back. And what happens when we go back to these habitual sins over and over? We feel dirty. We feel shameful. And it keeps us away from the Lord. Have you ever added up those days, by the way, of how many days you spent away from the Lord because of your shame? Because all along you have thought that the law was a burden. You have thought that the law was meant to be repressive over you. And even today, as I tell you this, you, many of us in here believe that the law is a burden on us. I can't do it. I can't get there. And Jesus is going to tell you in his claim today, I know that's why I came. That's why I'm here. That's why I came is because this man, these men at this table couldn't keep up the law and you Pharisee can't keep up the law but you think you're great because on the outside, he calls them later whitewashed tombs. He says on the outside, you look really clean. You look really great on your Instagram profile but on the inside, you're dead. And he says, I came for you. I came for you, religious person. I came for you, person that you call a sinner. You're both sinners. I came for you, licentious person. This is who the Lord is. Y'all, I was never taught this growing up. No one ever told me this. No one ever said to me that the law was a gift. I mean, even when you say it to me now, I'm like, what are you talking about? The law is a gift, man. It says in the Old Testament, you know that in the Old Testament, it says that uh, there was never one bad instance of speaking of the law in a negative light. Every instance in the Old Testament is all positive. David said, it's like honey to my lips. He said he would lay in bed and meditate on the law. I mean, when's the last time you did that? Oh, gosh, Ten Commandments. I can't wait to go to bed tonight. Mm, yes, we'll not commit adultery. We'll not commit adultery. It's just like, what? This is the beauty of the gift of the law is that God said, I created you. I made you. And I placed you in my universe that I created. And I said, here is the way by which I want you to live. This is the universe, and this is by the way I'm calling you to live. And if you would trust me, it's the way that will lead to your flourishing. It's the way that will lead to your joy. It's the way that will lead to your life. It's the way that will lead to the satisfaction that you're looking for. But so many of us right now are like me when I was growing up, that I thought that God was a God in the sky with a lightning bolt in his hand, and every time I messed up and didn't do something right, he was going to throw it down and strike me like Zeus. Or I thought maybe if I didn't keep up my moral ways, that maybe I was going to go to hell or I was going to get cancer, or God was going to you know, bring some sort of retribution on me to show me that I was wrong. And that's what I've always pictured God as. But you know what? This is the thing. If you look in Genesis, you know in Genesis, they only gave, he only gave Adam and Eve one command. There was only one law in the very beginning of creation. It was don't eat the fruit from the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that fruit. You don't want knowledge of evil is what he said. And you know what happened? Well, she walked right up in there, and the man, I know, look, I, I know the story. The man was not around, too. Yes, they all were not there doing what they were supposed to do. They go up to the tree. She, she hears a snake, a serpent comes up, and he deceives her, and he says, did God really say that? I mean, did he really say don't eat that? And she's like, huh, I wonder, did God really say that? Y'all, the same tricks of the enemy are the same tricks today. 
Did God really say that's not what to do? And you know what she does? She eats it because he says, no, 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 no. He literally says, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to see what he sees and know what he knows. And that's exactly who we are today, y'all. We live in FOMO, (laughs) fear of missing out. And I'm guilty of it. If I don't live this way, if I don't go do that thing over there, I know it's not right. I know I shouldn't probably be there. It's not going to be good for my flourishing and my joy. But I'm like, man, I just, oh, I just want that. And we think if we can go to that thing, it'll open my eyes and I'll get something. But what does it do? It's like a poisonous apple. It tastes good for a minute and it just like a sugar crash poisons you later. And this is what God is saying is that the law was meant for your joy. And Jesus is furious at this. Um, I got a little brother. I don't know if you know this. I've got um, triplet siblings. And um, they are 11 years old now. And uh, they're really cute. And I love them. They live uh, with my father overseas. And uh, I just saw them recently. And um, I gave uh, my younger brother, who's named Austin, uh, a, a massive bag of Skittles, okay? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like one of them like Halloween deals. Like just a huge bag. The jumbo ones you get from Costco. I gave him one of those, and, uh, and he sticks his hand in that, uh, that bag, and he starts eating all of the Skittles, right? He's, he's just eating, oh, man, this is so good, this is great. And my dad comes along and is like, no, 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 you are not going to keep eating all that because you, you're a little monster. You would eat all of the whole bag. I know you would. And so he takes the bag, and Austin starts freaking out. He's like, no, I want the bag back. I want the bag back. Give me the bag. I want the candy. Did he think my dad was being, like, giving him a gift by taking that away, or did he think... He was being a burden to him. Y'all, we're no different from 11-year-old children. We're no different. Because we believe that when God takes something away, that he's trying to withhold something from our joy. And he's trying to tell you, look, you keep eating those Skittles, you're going to end up sick. Keep eating those Skittles, you're going to die. Keep eating those Skittles, guess what's going to happen? It's not going to be for your joy and your flourishing. And the same problem that was a problem in the garden is the same problem today. Do we trust him? And Jesus is angry. He's angry at these Pharisees who are holding this this man and these people to these weights and these burdens of the law. And they're using the law to burden people rather than as a gift. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I control this. And and that claim that we're going to get to in a second is the key here. Today, many of us are on a spectrum. Some of us in here today Way down here, we believe, um, we're what we call moral relativists. We believe that I can do whatever I want, whenever I can do. It's, it's like the world outside these walls, right? It's 2019 America. Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me how to operate. That is oppressive and it's regressive. And that's one end of the spectrum. A lot of us are, are moderates. We're, we're right in the middle morally, you know? So we, we see this is what God says. We're like, okay, I can, I can live with that. He says that. But I would never go live with this thing over here. I don't want that. But I'll take that, and it's like a buffet line. I'm like at Luby's. I'm like, I want that, I want that, I want that. Y'all know y'all love Luby's. Look, don't hate on Luby's. And you're just taking what you want, and then over here you're like, I'll forget that. And what happens at the end of the day is you end up with a, a Bible that's got a lot of holes in it. You've cut a lot of scriptures out because it, it's not what you wanted. 
And you didn't believe the Lord when he said that's not good for you, for your joy and flourishing. And then there's some of us over here who are on the other end of the spectrum, and those people over here, you want to live every letter of the law, every little thing. It's like, I'm going I'm to follow this right the way, and if I mess up, like, oh my gosh, I'll ne- I would never mess up. I would never do that. I, and you're just trying, to, just trying to get it all right and trying to live a better life and be better and be good and do it right and do it the way that God wants it, and you're just exhausted. Yeah. And you're just tired. And you're worn out because you're white-knuckling this and you're thinking to yourself, if I just get it more right, if I can just get it right this time and not fail again. And you're wearing yourself out and you're exhausted and the law is a burden to you, just like it's a burden to these men in this story. And this is what Jesus wanted to say in his claim. He wanted to say this in his claim. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the law. Now here's where we'll close out and wrap this up. In Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, God creates everything that you see. It takes him how many days? Oh wow, we gotta go back to uh, Bible school here. It takes him how many days? Six. He rests on the seventh day. He says, I'm going to take the seventh and rest. Now, if, if you have any sense of any theology at all, then you should be asking questions right now. Like, why does God rest on the seventh day? Does he get tired? No. The word there that he uses for the, he Sabbaths. He ceases. He stops. And so in the very beginning, on the seventh day, what he ends up doing, he doesn't get tired, but he rests. He stops. He sabbaths. He says, my work is finished. I'm done. I'm finished with it. Nothing more needs to be added. It's good. The original Sabbath day was God's it is finished day. That was the original Sabbath day. And so when Jesus comes along and he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, what he's saying is, I will go to the cross for you and I will say, your work will be done. You're you're striving to please me and to reach this level of doing things right will be done and it will be finished. I will Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I will end your work. I will cease your work. I will go to the cross. I will say those three words and that's what he does. He walks the road to Calvary, and he stretches. This man in this synagogue stretches his hand out to Jesus. Jesus stretches his arms out across the cross, and he says, it is finished. It is finished. You don't have to strive anymore, Christian. And he says, my life, I took this law that you felt was burdensome, and I fulfilled every single thing in this law. I did it all perfectly because you couldn't. I fulfilled it. Take my life onto yours. And that's what he says. Come to me, all who are weak and weary, and I will give you rest. I will give you Sabbath. I am your rest. I am the answer to your striving. You don't have to strive anymore. And the law becomes a gift for us. It becomes this thing for us that we begin to see that, oh my gosh, God actually is like a father. He's good because he did everything that I couldn't do. And he came to me. And he did everything I needed. 
And he fulfilled all the regulations that were burdensome to me, and it became a gift, and now I see what I should do. Not man-made structures, not man-made traditions and the 39 things that he added upon it. No, the law that God gave that was meant for you to flourish, and he says, if you follow this way, you're going to flourish now. You're going to find joy now, and the battle is still there today. Do we trust that, or do we trust ourselves? And Jesus says, I'm your Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And this is wild, you guys, because the very last verse in this that we read today is verse 6. And in verse 6, it says that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him because they wanted to destroy him. Now, who are the Herodians? The Herodians are these people for whom these tax collectors were giving their money. They were the supporters of Herod, the man placed in power to support Rome and to rule over Galilee. And what would it take for two political parties that opposed each other, Jews that hated Herodians, to get together and say, I want to kill this man? It took a man who went to the immoral and moral person and said to him, you're lost. That's what angered him. And today, that's what the Lord says to us. He says to us today, you need me. You need me because you can't do it on your own. And you're lost. And that offends people. The gospel is offensive. It's offensive to the morally right, and it's offensive to the immorally. Because it tells you you both need me. You can't do it. You weren't made to live on your own. You're made to live in surrender and dependency on me and my ways, and I will lead you as you walk as my companion down the path. I will guide you into flourishing and joy and life. I am your rest. So what was finished at the cross? Well, I just wrote these things out, and this is how we'll close. I want you to hear just a few things that I wrote that I was thinking, Lord, what was finished at the cross? How about beating yourself up over consistent failure? It's finished. How about weariness from habitual sin? It's finished. How about feeling you'll never be good enough? It's finished. The lies against your position and where you stand with God today, it's finished. It's over. The weight of not being good enough? Finished. The worry you'll never be getting better? Finished. The fighting to earn God's approval? Finished. Believing that God is disappointed in you? Finished. Earning your way into God's love? Finished. Getting it all right? Finished. Hiding from the reality of your sin today and your shame? Finished. Fear of telling other people what you struggle with is finished. Fear of man? Finished. Fear that people will find out that you're not what you're putting on on the outside? Finished. Hiding in the dark? Finished. Trying to keep it all together? Finished. Perfectionism, finished. Controlling the next steps of your life, finished. Guilty conscience, finished. Belief you'll never break your struggle, finished. Belief that you're better than somebody else outside of these walls, finished. Jesus is good. And he gives it all to you. He says, you don't gotta do anything but come to me. All of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Hebrews says, enter into that rest for a high priest who stands on your behalf right now and as an accuser speaks lies. The high priest stands before God and says, no, it's me. 
It's my life for theirs. I exchanged it. Come and receive it. That offer is open to anybody in here today. You don't have to have it all right. For some of you, you've never heard that before because you thought that God wanted you to be perfect and right. And he's here to tell you, I didn't. You're not perfect. I came for you because you're not perfect. And you need to open your hands and your heart today and invite him in because he's been waiting. Not for you to clean up, but for you to come and depend on him. And for some of you in here today, you need to repent of thinking you're better than people in the city. And understand that you're not better because you come to church or you go to community group or but you have the same need as they do. And that should empower you to love those people because God offers them the same thing he offers you. Who is sitting at your table today? Who have you invited in? What if this week looked so different if the Well Community Church started a revolution? And this week, our tables were flooded with people who made us a little uncomfortable. The city wouldn't know what to do. I'll close with this last thought. My, uh, I'll fly and I travel a lot to different places and I love traveling. And um, <laughs> as a pastor, when you sit on a plane, um, it's funny because people, what's the first question they ask you when you sit next to them? What do you do? And you're like, all right, what do I do right here? Okay, good. Like, do I come up with another reason of what I do and create something? I'm like, um, yeah, I, I, I build things. I'm a <laughs> construction worker. Uh, I'm a teacher. I'm a, an agent uh, for the Lord. Uh, okay. <laughs> and I'm like having this internal battle always of like, do I tell them I'm a pastor? Because, you know, there might, be an in, there might be an internal plane crash on the plane if we do that. And usually it goes one way or the other. People go, I want to hear more. People say, I don't want to hear anything else. Or, um, and they love to talk about it. But they always say to me, oh, so you're a Christian, you're religious. And I always say back to them, what do you mean by that? Can you explain more? Can you break that down for me? What do you mean I'm religious? And they say, well, don't you go to like a temple or something? And I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> don't you go to like a building? Isn't that like what you're supposed to do? I said, no, Jesus is my temple. And they say, oh, but you're a pastor, so you're like the priest over those people. I'm like, no, nah, Jesus is their priest. And they're like, okay, uh, well, don't y'all like, have to like make sacrifices and do certain things and like, you know, earn your way up? And I'm like, nah, Jesus was our final sacrifice. They're like, that's so weird because that doesn't sound like a religion to me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. And it creates a great conversation because Jesus came to dismantle all of that. He came to dismantle the weight and the burden that was held against you and he took it on his shoulders. This is the power of the cross of Christ the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord, it's this kind of reality that empowers us. God, when we hear today, I pray, I know there are people in this room today that for the very first time they heard today that they, their sins are not being counted against them and that even after they came to you, they maybe thought they had to do something right. And today, they have found freedom in hearing that you did it all right, so they didn't have to. 
I pray today, God, you would open the hearts of all of my brothers and sisters here, that they would come to you tired or exhausted from having to feel like they have to get better or do it right, and they would just lay at your feet, and again and again and again for the rest of their life, they would just fall on the cross and say, I need you. I surrender to you. Come and be my rest. Be my final. Be what I need. And I pray for the person in here who's wondering if they need to take a step forward to you today. I pray that they would hear, you did it all, and the door is wide open for them to walk through. They just need to say, I want you, Jesus. Spirit of God, empower us this week. Enable us to be this in the lives of people, to speak this, to love this way. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Amen.